I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Capehart. Eric Holder, the 82nd Attorney General of the United States, returns to the podcast to talk about his new book, co-written with Sam Koppelman, Our Unfinished March, The Violent Past and Imperiled Future of the Vote. And in it, Holder issues a bracing warning for the United States. American democracy is on the brink of collapse. In this conversation, first recorded on June 6th for Washington Post Live, Holder talks about what needs to be done to save American democracy. He gives his view on why the Great Replacement Conspiracy Theory is gaining ground. And he talks about his expectations for the primetime hearings of the January 6th committee. Attorney General Holder, welcome back to Capehart on Washington Post Live. Mr. Capehart, it is a pleasure to see you as always. How are you doing? I am well, thanks. I am well. Um, so, listen, we got to talk about some things before we talk about the book. As the as America's former chief law enforcement official, um, what do you make of the recent string of mass shootings and attempts in Congress to pass some type of gun safety legislation? You know, well, unfortunately, um, what we're seeing now in the nation with regard to mass shootings is not something that is unique to this year. We have been seeing this for decades at this point. Um, if you look back to you know those awful shootings uh, almost a decade ago or at this point uh, at Newtown, at Sandy Hook Elementary School, uh, we have seen time after time after time, it's hard to keep in our own minds. Um, you know, what, what, where did the shooting occur? How many people died? Um, it is time, it is beyond time for the leaders of this nation, for Congress, for our state legislatures to act and to put into place reasonable gun safety measures to stop this. We are the only nation, the only comparable nation that has these rates of, of mass shootings, these rates of, of, of gun killings. Um, you know, there are people talk about mental health. There are, are, are people with mental issues in other nations, in Europe, Asia, other parts of the world, who don't have anything close to um, the gun rates, gun death rate of violence that we see um, in this nation. It, it is the presence of guns and the way in which we allow people to get them and to use them that is at the root of our problem. And so Congress needs to act. Congress needs to finally act. And if they don't act, people need to hold them um, accountable. Well, I was about to ask, what does it say about our political system that even after the slaughter of children at Newtown, at Parkland, at Uvalde, that not even the most minimal thing um, related to gun safety can get passed? Well, it means that at least one party, the Republican Party, uh, has has welded itself to uh, the gun industry, the gun, the gun lobby, and that has to be broken. Um, but and that's a function of one of the things I talk about in, in the book: this whole notion of, of gerrymandering, where politicians get to pick their their voters. And this is a really graphic example of the harm, the concrete harm of gerrymandering, where a politician can do something inconsistent with the desires of his or her constituents and not suffer any political consequence because they are in these gerrymandered safe districts. It's one of the structural changes that we need to make so that we have a government that is responsive to the needs and the desires of the people. You gotta remember, 80, 90% of the people in this country are in favor of background checks and have been so since uh, the, the shootings at, at Sandy Hook. 
and yet we have done nothing. 60% of the people are in favor of banning uh, the, the possession and the use of, uh, of AR-15s, these, these assault rifles, and yet we do nothing. Um, we have got to hold our politicians accountable, but we also have to change our systems so that we can ho- so that we actually can hold our politicians responsible. I was going to come to gerrymandering a little bit later, so since you brought it up, um, let's go there. The idea of elected officials picking their voters as opposed to voters picking their elected officials. This is something that both parties do. This is not this is not just one party. It's both parties. So how did we get to this point? where elected officials are choosing their voters. Yeah, and we, we've, as I say in the book, you know, we've been dealing with the problem of gerrymandering since the beginning of the Republic. Um, uh, you know, uh, the, the founding fathers, James Madison, James Monroe, got into a dispute. Patrick Henry actually, I don't remember who he, he actually drew a gerrymander so that one of the Jameses um, could not serve in the House of Representatives. So we've been dealing with it for that long. Princeton University did a study that said that the gerrymandering of 2011, where Republicans really went to town, was the worst of the past half century. But it is true. The Democrats um, have also uh, also gerrymandered. The difference that we have now, and we saw in 2011 and that we see in 2021, 2022, is that we now have uh, scientific capabilities, um, computer capabilities, forensic capabilities, not only to know kind of how neighborhoods are going to vote, but also to figure out how households are, are going to vote. And so the lines can be drawn with surgical precision to main, to maximize the impact of a gerrymander, to maximize the, the safeness of a seat for a particular party. So you have a desire on, on the parts of parties to do these kinds of things, I would say disproportionately Republicans now, um, and they have the tools uh, to use, they have the tools to make these gerrymanders not only um, effective, but to make them enduring. Right, make them enduring and also make them impervious to the will of the people. And this gets to um, minority rule, which you write about in the book, and the inability of Congress to enact legislation supported by a majority of the of the public reflects this troubling disconnect where legislators representing a minority of interests have disproportionate power to halt legislation. We have seen it time and again when it comes to gun safety legislation. And as I said, you write about this in your book. Talk about what what can only be called minority rule. Yeah, we are in danger of slipping into uh, what I would call a, a political apartheid system where a minority of the people in this country uh, will have disproportionate amounts of power and be able to put in place things that are not supported by the majority. Well, again, let's very, very, very concrete about this. Um, it, it appears that the Supreme Court is about to overrule um, the Roe versus um, Wade decision, something that in every state, if you go state by state, even in the most conservative of states, um, people are against. Now, the margins are different in New York as opposed to, say, Texas or, or Oklahoma. And yet the minority will be represented by the majority that was put, put on the Supreme Court by two presidents who did not win the majority of, of the vote because of our electoral college, uh, will have the ability to foist on the nation um, a, a policy with regard to reproductive rights that is not supported by the people of this country. And you see it in a, in a whole range of other issues, gun safety, we, we talked about that, criminal justice reform, a, a whole range of things that uh, where the American people are, are essentially together, you know, 60% in some instances, 80, 90%, as I said, with regard to background checks, 
and yet we don't see our laws, our regulations, our policies uh, reflective of what in a lot of places is consensus on the part of the American people. Yeah, we are a divided nation right now, but we are a lot more together um, th- than people, um, I think, recognize. And we could be a lot more together if we had uh, a political system that reflected the will of the, uh, of the majority. Let's keep talking about the Supreme Court, because when you were attorney general, the Supreme Court struck down many of the provisions of the 1965 Voting Rights Act in a case that bears your name, Shelby v. Holder. Why was that ruling so damaging to the right to vote? Yeah, uh, without getting too technical, um, what that the ruling essentially did was take the Justice Department um, out of the role that the 1965 Voting Rights Act created for it. And that was to allow the Justice Department to look at changes that were going to be made with regard to, say, polling places, uh, voting times, um, how precinct lines were drawn in those jurisdictions that were covered, that were covered, covered within covered jurisdictions that largely reflected um, the states of the of the old Confederacy, but also uh, parts of, of New York State. People don't necessarily understand that. Uh, and took the Justice Department, um, took that Justice Department power away, which allowed the states then and almost immediately after the ruling to put into place a whole range of things that suppressed the vote, made it more difficult for people to vote, uh, put purges uh, in place of, of, of certain people, all of which would have been objected to by the Justice Department. But the Justice Department was no longer on the field. And we have seen since the Shelby County ruling, just one statistic, uh, almost 1,800 polling places around the country that have closed. We have seen the imposition of these unnecessary um, photo ID laws to prove that you are, in fact, who you claim to be when you uh, go to the polling places. When the Brennan Center says that the likelihood that a person's going to go to a polling place and try to cast a fraudulent in-person ballot um, is is uh, is even is, is even more is less likely than you're going to get hit by by lightning. I mean, you're more likely to get hit by lightning than to try to cast uh, an in-person fraudulent ballot. And so, a whole range of things were put in place that the Justice Department could not um, could not object to. Were you surprised? by how quickly states moved to take advantage of the Shelby v. Holder ruling? Yeah, that's actually a very good question. Um, Yeah, I was surprised. Um, I I didn't think first the court would do what it did, um, given the fact that the uh, Voting Rights Act had recently been reauthorized, signed by a Republican president, passed unanimously in the Senate, small opposition in the House of Representatives, I mean like 20, 30 people. Um, so the the fact that it happened surprised me. And then I expected, yeah, that the states would take advantage of it. But I thought it might be months down the road. And in fact, it was weeks and days before uh, states started to take advantage of the ruling and to change uh, the, the provisions or a variety of electoral things that they know would have been prohibited uh, prior to the gutting of the act by the uh, Supreme Court. Uh, then Texas Attorney General Greg Abbott, I think on the day of the ruling, sent out a tweet that said to the effect, well, this means Eric Holder and the Justice Department no longer can in- interfere um, you know, w- with Texas politics, you know, something, something along those lines. But this was on the same, on the same day as the, uh, as, as the ruling. And we have seen as I said, since 2013, which was the data of the ruling, a whole range of things done by 
um, Republican um, legislatures, governors, uh, to put in place either unnecessary um, or really count counterproductive um, measures to have an impact on voters who they perceive to be um, Democrats and voters who are disproportionately people of color. Let me re-state re, um, to you a um, quote of yours from the book that I mentioned in the, in the intro, and that is, American democracy is on the brink of collapse. You've touched on a lot of the reasons why in you know, various responses to my questions. But what struck me about reading that and knowing you for as long as I have, because you're not prone to hyperbole. And you're not prone to to um, drama, but that is a but that is a very dramatic statement. Do you feel that we are are we on the brink of collapse, or are we scrambling as we slide down the hill? Well, I, I'd say that we're dangerously close to collapse. I mean, I'm not a hyperbolic person. Uh, I don't say things that are. Um, I, I think without, you know, without basis, in, in fact, uh, and, I'm, and I'm really concerned. Our, our democracy is certainly under attack. Um, in addition to all the things that I've talked about with regard to unfair voting procedures, we have seen an, a tax on our electoral infrastructure. I mean, who actually counts the votes? We've seen, you know, this notion of this, this doctrine of independent state legislatures where a legislature might actually decide based on, I guess, what a legislature wants to consider, anything other than the popular vote to decide who actually goes to the electoral college to cast votes um, for, for president. Um, there's a whole range of things that are, are, are happening now um, that give me great, great pause. Um, about the state of our democracy. But I, I think what I hope people get from the book is that we have faced similar kinds of issues in the past. Uh, although this one is, is about as serious as they come. Uh, and, and because people have you know, bound themselves together, committed themselves, sacrificed, um, we have gotten through it. And we have that capacity now, I think, uh, to, to save our democracy. And I, I think we should understand something here. And, and I'm not being hyperbolic here either. Uh, if you look at Europe in the 20th century, uh, democracies fell there, not because fascism was strong, but because the defense of democracy was weak. And we should learn from that. There was a coup attempt, a coup attempt on January the 6th to stop the peaceful transfer of power, to stop the transfer of power um, at all. I suspect we're going to see things from the January 6th committee over the court starting, I guess, next week um, that I, I think is going to really uh, be, be shocking. And I hope people will pay attention. I hope people will be moved by what they see. And I hope that will goad us into the necessary structural changes um, that I think we have to make in order to preserve, preserve the, American, uh, the, the American experiment. Well, let's keep talking about January 6th, because the, the first uh, hearing is set for June 9th in prime time. And I'm wondering, what are you hoping uh, comes out of these hearings? And do you think the, these hearings will actually make a difference? With regard to the second question, will it make a difference? I don't know. You know, I think uh, my concern is that people are so entrenched in their positions that 
you know, some conservatives, Republicans will look and say, oh, this is all fake news. It, it, it's not real. It's inconsistent with what, you know, Donald Trump says. Hopefully, uh, you know, Democrats, liberals, progressives will be moved. Uh, and my hope is that those people who are, you know, independent um, and there's a substantial number of those folks will, will look at this with, um, you know, in, in a neutral way and, and be convinced or, or not convinced by what it is that the committee um, says. But what I think we're going to see is um, a, a conspiracy, the, the breadth uh, and depth of which is going to be truly shocking. Uh, we have seen leaks from the committee to give you a, a sense of what's to come. There's been great journalism done by you know people at the Post and 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 uh, and other uh, other outlets that give us more of a sense of what we are, are likely to, to see. And even what we know so far, I think is is quite frightening to see that you had people at the highest levels of the White House engage with people at the Justice Department, aided by lawyers coming up with cockamamie theories, all designed to not have that electoral vote count happen on January the 6th, throw this throw the election into the House of Representatives after you disqualified, uh, you know, three or four states electors and allow Donald Trump to consider to continue in office, even though he lost the election by seven million votes. My hope is that people will be shocked by that, alarmed by that. Um, and demand that changes um, be made and that people be held accountable. Because if no one's held accountable, if no one is held accountable, there is no deterrent effect and it doesn't stop somebody 20, 30, 40 years from now from trying to do the same thing that uh, the Trump crowd tried to do um, before and after January the 6th. Now, you know, Mr. Former Attorney General, that there are a lot of people who are afraid that a lot of people involved in January 6th will not be held accountable. And they've been f focusing a lot of their ire at your one of your successors, the current, the current Attorney General, Att Attorney General Merrick Garland. There are people who are concerned that he is moving way too slowly if, if they don't think he's moving at all. How concerned are you? that the attorney general isn't taking this as seriously as a lot of the American people are? And are you concerned that the Department of Justice won't hold anyone accountable? No, I'm not really concerned about that. Um, you know, I've known Merrick for a fair number of years. Uh, he is a serious, um, sober um, person who has a great record, both as a judge and when he was a prosecutor. Uh, There's a great deputy attorney general, Lisa Monaco, a great um, assistant uh, associate attorney general, uh, Vanita Gupta. I I'm confident that the leadership of the Justice Department will do the right thing. Um, the fact that the Justice Department does not speak or, or, or ha have the ability to share uh, what it's actually doing is kind of is consistent with the way we have structured things. The Justice Department speaks through indictments. Um, I, I think it is, however, significant if you look at the speech that the attorney general gave, I think it was on January the 5th, maybe January the 6th. He said that uh, the Justice Department would hold accountable people who were involved, engaged in the January 6th activities at any level. Those three words at any right. level. And he is a, a person who is careful with his words. Uh, as I said, he's a former judge. And I think that was telegraphing something um, in a very significant way. So I think ultimately, I think ultimately the Justice Department um, will do 
from my perspective, um, something that's consistent with the facts, consistent with the law. Uh, and I think we'll have a good sense of what those facts are uh, as we have the January 6th committee um, share its findings. Let me bring you back to the book because you um, write about and you've mentioned the heroes and heroines throughout our history in terms of securing the right, fighting for the right to vote, securing the right to vote. Um, among all of them, who, who is for you the, your, the greatest hero? Boy, that's a tough one. That's, that's a really tough one. Um, you know, it, the book is dedicated to John Lewis, um, uh, a, a person who, as I, as I say in the book, um, I, I, he called me his friend. I could never get to that place with him. He was my idol, a, a person who I just totally respected and had a good relationship with. Um, you know, his pivotal role in marching across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, getting his skull cracked, um, being an instrumental part of getting the 1965 Voting Rights, put in, Voting Rights Act put into place. Um, he is a person who, for me, is a seminal figure. And yet, I, I think, you know, one of the things that people need to understand, this fight for voting rights is something that a lot of groups have gone through. Um, you think about this guy, Thomas Dore, in 1840 in Rhode Island, who was fighting for the right of white men, white men, white men without property to get the right to vote. He fomented a rebellion in Rhode Island. I'm not saying we, sh we should do that. Um, you know, I think about Alice Paul, uh, a, a young woman who marched with other women down um, Pennsylvania Avenue in 1913 and not were booed or anything like that. They were actually beaten as they marched down um, Pennsylvania Avenue demanding the right to vote for women. She then, in, in 1917, as she camped out in front of the White House, was arrested, put in the D.C. jail, and a tube was put down her nose, and she was force-fed along with her uh, other fellow, with her fellow um, protesters in, in what was called the Night of Horror. And that so moved Woodrow Wilson, who had his own problems, um, to ultimately come out for... Um, for the right uh, to vote for, for women. And then just, just briefly, you know, a couple of people um, in, in the present day, a young woman named Love Caesar, who, who saw that the campus of North Carolina A&T, which is the largest um, historically black college university in the country was split, was gerrymandered. And she took a piece of chalk and just drew a line right down um, the middle of the campus to show where that line was drawn to raise the consciousness of the kids there. Um, and it was she raised it to our attention and through her activism, our lawsuit, we were able to change, um, actually able to change the lines and make them more fair in the whole state of North Carolina. So there are people in the past. There are people in the present. Um, so I've not totally answered your question in the sense that I picked one. But those are among the people who I mentioned in the book. Uh, and I, we try to tell I try to tell the story. Um, through various people, through various times in our history about the fight for um, voting rights and to make people understand that this is not simply about the desire of African-Americans uh, to get the right to vote, though we play a central role. Uh, it, it is about the desire of all Americans to have the ability to cast a ballot. Right, right. I want to um, read uh, back to you another quote in your book, uh, uh, especially for those who have not had a chance to read it yet, you write, in the long run, the story of American democracy is one of grinding, halting, blood-stained persistence and expansion, even in the face of tyranny. But we've had to work for it because the path to progress has never been blazed through inertia. And I wanted to read that quote because 
What do you say to folks, particularly young folks who see the inertia in Washington on voting rights, on gun uh, police reform, on, on gun safety, you name it, as a reason to sit out defending democracy with their votes? Yeah, inertia um, gets us nothing. The lack of action by our political leaders should not lead to pessimism, which also leads to inaction. Um, we have got to be optimistic about the ability for us to be masters again of our own fate, and that is only through action. I mean, I'm sure there are times when Alice Paul, who I talked about you know, in the fight for women's suffrage, probably thought, this is not going to happen, and yet she fought through that. I'm sure that Dr. King, John Lewis, Andrew Young, at some point, you know, on a bad evening thought, are we really going to be able to rip down a system of American racial apartheid? And yet they fought through that. We have hundreds of Americans, thousands, millions of Americans who fought for an America that they never experienced, that they could only imagine. And that's what we, I think, that's the kind of spirit I think we have to have today. If we can't envision in our own minds the America that we want to have exist, we will not get to that place. And so I understand. I understand. And, you know, people can say, Eric, you know, your your list is too long. Um, you're being wildly optimistic. You're not being realistic. <laughs> Those people who brought about change in, in this country had lists that were long, were wildly um, optimistic. Um, were charged with being unrealistic, you know? So I line myself up with them. Um, and I think if we fight, if we're prepared to sacrifice, if we're prepared to commit ourselves to the cause, we can change this country for the better. We can actually save this country uh, in a way that I think that's a debt that we owe to people who, who gave so much so that we would be the nation that we are today. Let me get you on, on one more thing. Um, this is a, a report from the Southern Poverty Law Center that came out last week. And um, I just wrote a column about it. I talked about it on the show yesterday. It's so disturbing because, the, the, let me just read you this, this key data point. Nearly seven in 10 Republicans believe some aspects of the racist great replacement conspiracy um, that whites are being, that people of color, non-whites and immigrants are purposefully being brought into the country to replace white voters. But here's what, the, I mean, seven in 10 Republicans is already disturbing, but here's another data point. Overall, 48% of Americans agreed that demographic changes in the United States were part of a, quote, purposeful plan to replace white voters. Would love your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, I gave a speech that I got a lot of grief about back in 2009, a Black History Month speech. Uh, and among other, among other things, I, I said that, you know, we have never come to grips with our racial past, uh, our racial present, or our racial future. And until we do, we will not become the nation that I think we that we can become. And, and in that speech, I warned that um, people not committed to the American ideals would take advantage of the fear that we have, that Americans have around race and ethnicity and use it for their own political purposes. We need to understand our history. We need to understand our present. We need to understand the changing demography that this nation is fated uh, to have. And as I said back in 2009, that changing demography can be something that is a plus for this nation if we accept it, um, if we understand it, 
or it can be something that divides this nation if it is exploited in inappropriate ways. You know, the fact that we are a changing nation, we've always been a changing nation, and that gives us a competitive advantage over more homogenous nations as we are competing around the world. The things that we're talking, that people are saying now, about this new wave of immigration that we're dealing with, but the same things that people said about waves of immigrants that came at the beginning of the 20th century, when Italians, um, when people from Ireland were, were seen as, as changing you know, the fabric of the nation. So this is not something that is necessarily new. We dealt with this before, and that's why our study and our understanding of our history is really the foundation for um, the better future that I still think um, that we can have. Um, you, you write in the book, and we've discussed it, America is on the brink of collapse. Your gut right now, can we get through this? Will we save America from collapse, our democracy from collapse? Yeah, I think we'll get through it. And I think that we'll, we'll come out of this stronger. But it's not going to be something that happens in, uh, you know, a, a 24-hour news cycle. It's not going to be something that happens over the course of a week. It's going to take, um, you know, it's going to take some time. And it's going to take the involvement of a whole bunch of people, as it always has. You know, um, the civil rights movement was not successful in a year. Um, the fight for women's suffrage did not occur over the course of a few months. Um, it's going to take some time. But I'm really confident that um, we are starting to see here the, 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 the attempt at a birth of a new era of civic engagement by the American people. And the status quo, people in the status quo, those who have power now are afraid of that. And they're trying to keep that civic engagement, the involvement of the American people, uh, trying to minimize that. And so we've got to fight through that. We've got to fight those people who want to hold on to power at, at all costs and, and try to empower the people of this country. I'm actually optimistic that we will um, that we'll do this. It won't be easy. There will be sacrifices. It'll come in zig and, zigs and zags. There'll be progress, and then we'll, we, won't, we won't see progress. Uh, there'll be failures. But I, I think overall that, that arc um, that Dr. King talked about is one that, if not inevitable, um, is likely to happen if we're willing to fight for it. Eric Holder, 82nd Attorney General of the United States and author, along with Sam Koppelman, author of the book, Our Unfinished March. The Violent Past and Imperiled Future of the Vote. Attorney General Holder, thank you so much for coming back to Capehart on Washington Post Live. All right. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's produced by Julie Deppenbrock. We'll have new episodes for you every Tuesday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.